Most of us have some experience building trust with teams in person. Today, leaders are increasingly called upon to build belonging across hybrid and remote teams. If that's you too, this episode will help with a few places to start. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 604. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Of course, so many leaders today are leading in environments that are not just co-located, but are leading in remote and hybrid environments. Almost all of us are inside our organizations, finding ourselves in places where we're now needing to lead and create teams and culture in a way that is different than many of us were used to in our careers as we started and now, of course, continue. I'm so glad today to be able to introduce someone to you that will help us to do a better job at having remote teams find belonging. I'm so pleased to welcome Gustavo Rossetti to the show. He is the CEO and founder of Fearless Culture, a culture design consultancy that helps teams do the best work of their lives. For more than 20 years, he's helped leaders from Fortune 500s, startups, nonprofits, and everything in between. He is also the creator of the Culture Design Canvas, a framework used by thousands of teams and organizations across the world to map, assess, and design their culture. In addition to his consulting work, Gustavo regularly speaks with leaders and teams about culture change, teamwork, and hybrid workplaces. He is the author of four books on culture change. His most recent book is Remote Not Distant, Design a Company Culture That Will Help You Thrive in a Hybrid Workplace. Gustavo, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, Dave and everyone. So happy to be here. Very excited about the conversation today. Thank you for hosting me. I am really looking forward to this conversation as well, because, of course, culture is a topic that we can never say enough about. And, of course, now the change we've all experienced of so many more organizations having aspects of hybrid and remote work with their teams. And I thought it was interesting as I was looking at your work that you make the point that hybrid in particular, has the potential to bring together the best of both worlds, the convenience of working from home, which, of course, we've all experienced, but also the social interactions from the office. But it's interesting that some organizations, as you say, are slipping back into some of the older unhealthy habits, and that hybrid could actually become the worst of both worlds. What are you seeing right now that's potentially worse? Thank you. I think that stepping back for a second, the first thing that I see is the confusion that people use hybrid as one thing, and hybrid is something more than how people use the term. So usually mm-hmm. think people are thinking of hybrid as, let's say, as an example, three days in the office, two days from home. So a very rigid, structured approach of how to combine the best of both worlds. And I think that basically not only it's telling them that they're missing other models, but most importantly, that those three days in the office, two from home or four in the office, one, are things that are being defined and determined by the senior leaders. And that's the magic that they're missing. Hybrid, it's encouraging people to design their workday the best way 
for their teams and for the individuals. So it's not a one size fits all. It's about embracing the complexity of having different models within different teams. But in the end, make sure that we find some common grounds so we can do our best work. So basically the approach of one size fit all, that rigidity, but also the idea that there's one single model when it comes to hybrid and that needs to be defined by the leaders it's one of the worst things I'm seeing. No? So there's this push between people wanting flexibility and leaders trying to impose a model that suits them, but not their teams. When you see that rigidity happening right now, what is it that is causing that to then not work for the organization? That's a great choice of word. I think that because the workplace has been rigid for many years. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about the nine to five, no, even though it's nine to seven-ish, no, it's a structure that people need to show up on a particular a, a, a bandwidth that restructure how people work. You know that some people are best at working in the morning. Some people do best, like myself, working late, late at night. Uh, there are people that have family. So the workplace is more complex depending on your family situation. If you have a family, if you live alone, if you live or work in a comfortable house, or you basically share a one-bedroom studio with a colleague. So there are a lot of things that affect how you work. And I think that in the past, we thought about, hey, people come to the office, we have a one workplace, and everyone abides by the same rule. And as I mentioned, this rigidity comes from leaders. No, The office was the most visible example and metaphor of power. So the more you progress in an organization, the better workspace you get. One thing that happens in many companies, the CEO gets a better computer than many people, even though the CEO (laughs) barely uses the computer or just writes stuff when other people are using technology that requires harder computer. The CEO gets the biggest office. So now we're seeing that there's this struggle because in a hybrid workplace, the playing field gets more leveled. No, so everyone's a rectangle. When we're having a virtual call like this, everyone's like a rectangle. There's no such thing as corner office. There's no those powers that you can show in front of others. So that's kind of a little bit of the rigidity is coming from leaders are feeling that they're losing power. They're also losing perks because you have the chauffeur takes them from home to the office. They have a, an admin that takes care of everything, also printing. But now CEOs have to print at home or they have to take care of a lot of a, a tiny things like getting a coffee when they used to have people that took care of those things for themselves. And even if it sounds very a, a, a tactical, there are a lot of things that come to this persona or what it comes to being a leader that start to play a less important role. So the rigidity, it's about defending that position, to defending that role, that a reputation that comes with all those perks, with all those physical objects, so to speak. Yeah, this has reminded me of something I highlighted as I was reading the book. You, you write, leaders feel powerless in a hybrid workplace. In short, they miss being in control. Remote expert David Tate said it best, when fearful CEOs talk about workplace culture, they're really talking about workplace control. I think about that in relation to what you just said. And I'm and I'm also thinking about it through the lens of, like you said, we often think about hybrid of, okay, is it three days at home and two days in office or four days at home or whatever the ratio is, right? 
but we don't necessarily think about it in the terms that you mentioned of what kind of schedule do I like to have? What works for me in my own personal schedule? How does our team, maybe the organization has a policy or a process, but how does our team work together specifically? There's a lot of variables to this that I think a lot of times get lost in the nuances get lost when we talk about hybrid. Absolutely. And I think the, the important thing that you mentioned, schedule. No, So it's not just about location, flexibility. It's about how people do their work and also how they do it. So rather than leaders imposing the what works best for them, it's allowing teams to choose what works best for the teams. The in, interesting thing about, uh, and connecting with the previous question about flexibility is for some leaders, and I understand this because it's they're not prepared, they weren't trying to lead in a hybrid workplace, they think that flexibility means chaos. Or it means that people are going to start making choices that are going to benefit them personally, but not necessarily the team or the company. Mm-hmm. And I always say flexibility with freedom comes accountability. So we need to find the right balance between flexibility and intentionality. No, we need to be very uh, intentional in terms of how we design that experience of working together. So the companies that succeed in this kind of environment, either fully remote or in a hybrid, they're very obsessive about how they create rules and expectations, how they intentionally design their culture. So for example, if I and my team members are able to choose our working hours, we also need to agree that a in a particular time zone or time range, we are all going to be available, regardless of our preferences. So we, if anyone needs us, if we need to have a call that in that time range, everyone's going to be what we call collaboration time. Everyone's going to be uh, available. Documentation is another very important piece. Like if we're going to work uh, asynchronously at our own time rather than always uh, on, then we need to be very obsessive, intentional about how we document everything so people can find information, they can build on that, and they don't get lost in the process. Amy Edmondson has been on the show before talking about psychological safety, and there's a number of folks in our listening community who are fans of her work. And we talked about it mostly before the pandemic, though, and you highlight a lot of her work in your book, and you say psychological safety is more important now than ever. What makes it more important now, especially in the hybrid and remote environments we're in? There are two elements. One is the visibility aspect, no? So it's easy to trust people that you see what they're doing or kind of, but when you're not seeing your team members all the time or we're going to not be seeing them very often, then it requires a, a higher level of trust. That's one. The second point is that we used to think, because I never believe it really existed, that there was like a line separating our personal and our professional lives. Mm. If that line was blurred, now it has become even more blurred than ever. And you can see like with the moment that you get to participate in a, in a virtual call with your colleagues, you get to see a little bit of their house, maybe their babies, maybe their spouses or or pets, the colors or how they decorate or a lot of things that didn't happen or people have to interrupt because there's something going on in the background. Well, you need a lot of trust, a lot of collective psychological safety is the collective trust in order for people to feel safe integrating those stuff. 
if we are encouraging people to be flexible, that means that people now are having conversations that they used to have. For example, I need to work more from home or, or today because I have an issue with my family or I have a personal thing that I need to take. So we start talking about things that we didn't address in the past. The issues were there, but now they become more evident. But also we gave each other permission to start bringing those personal things that we didn't do in the past. You mentioned the word trust. And one of the things that I really appreciated is the distinction you make in your writing between trust and psychological safety. And I hadn't really thought about that distinction consciously until you surfaced it. And I'm wondering if you could outline what that distinction looks like when we think about a team. Absolutely. Trust is something that happens within two people. So you trust me, Dave, and you brought me into your show. I trust you that you have a great job. We also have a friend in common that introduced us, right? That's trust. It's our personal relationships. And that's important. But then, so it's not one or the other, trust or psychological safety. We need both. Mm. Psychological safety happens, as I mentioned earlier, at a collective level. It's the feeling that the team is safe to take interpersonal risks. So basically, I can bring my full self to work. I can ask questions. I can share my ideas in the open. I can push back even to my manager without fear of retaliation. So nothing's going to happen, and I feel safe to be, do that. And once again, when I talk about pushback, it's not because we're saying, hey, let's encourage fight, but it's that positive friction when you bring diverse perspectives that elevate the conversation, that elevate the quality of the solutions or outcome. I think the important notion is that trust, as I mentioned, happens between two people. Each person needs to contribute. In psychological safety, the same, the entire team needs to build that safety. It's not just the leader. So every team member needs to contribute. So if your leader is okay with you speaking up, but one of your colleagues is looking at you making faces, then that decreases the overall level of psychological safety. Yeah, and you make the point too, which I so appreciate that this it isn't an on-off switch. It's it's not you have it or you don't, that it's a spectrum. It's a matter of how much. And you use the analogy of a ladder for what psychological safety can look like with a team. What does that ladder look like? It's a ladder because we have to climb it, but the way the many the same way that we go up, we can go down. So to your point, it's a it's a spectrum, but it's not that once you achieve it, check, it's there for no, you need to continually build it. But also it's a ladder because I identify three levels. The first level, which is foundational, it's people feeling welcome. This idea that people accept me as a person, that they respect my opinion, so I feel welcome. No, I can ask for help. It's okay to talk about personal issues, and we know each other personally. Without building or without accomplishing that level, it's harder to move to the next. Level two, it's about courageous conversations. And level three, it's about innovation. So in order to under for the audience to understand why we talk about the three levels, Many companies ask their team members to, hey, you need to be more innovative. You need to take more risks. You need to be more experimental. But if people don't feel safe at a very human level as a person, they don't feel accepted as a person, you cannot expect them to take risks regarding ideas because they're not there. So once again, level one, it's feeling welcome. Level two, it's about promoting courageous conversations. So creating a, a team that's safe for people to 
ask questions, to bring their unique perspectives, to discuss uh, tough problems, to encourage disagreement, once again, not for the sake of disagreeing, but for the sake of improving how we operate. So to talk about the issues so we can fix them. And lastly, level three, as I mentioned, is about innovation. So I can ask questions, I can push back, I can think differently. It's okay to talk about mistakes, to own our mistakes, to learn from them, and so on and so forth. I so appreciate the model and the image of the ladder of being able to go up and down. And I think I'd be really interested in looking at some of the level one tactics that we can utilize that would help us to begin to move up that ladder a bit. One, because they're the kinds of things that happen a little bit more naturally when folks are co-located. And I think if we're not as intentional about doing it in a remote or hybrid environment, it doesn't happen accidentally. But also, secondly, because I think even in, even in co-located environments, the level one type of things don't often happen. At least I haven't seen them done very consistently with a lot of leaders. And then I think when we try to go further up the ladder and we haven't done much of level one, we we miss out. And it's hard to know what's missing, but there's so many practical things we can do. And I think this is a really great starting point for folks. And you mentioned in the book, you cite an example from Sachi and Sachi of a team leader modeling vulnerability. I was wondering if you could walk us through like what something like that would look like as an invitation to do a bit more of that welcoming activity. Absolutely. I think that vulnerability to your point is something that is critical because if you as a leader can model it, then you're making it okay for others to practice it as well. I think that vulnerability is very important, but also something that leaders really feel really bad about it. Many leaders reject the idea because it feels, oh, this is going to make me weak. And basically, I'm going to lose my reputation, my strength. I think that we need to be clear, vulnerability is not about uh, kumbaya. It's not about, ah, we're humans. It's about understanding that you're not perfect. So for me, it's about willing to show that you're not perfect, that you have second thoughts, that maybe you screw up. I think that's the point. If you want to talk about emotions or get deeper, that's okay. But even if you don't get there, sending the signals that you're human and that you also made mistakes in your career and that's what got you where you are, that's going to open up the conversation. We talk about different tactics. I like metaphors because I think they allow people to talk about things that usually, for example, we do a, the other day I was facilitating a, a, a workshop with more than 1,000 people and we break it down in, in teams of two, even though people have been working for a long time together. And we ask them to think about the weather. You now, what was the weather like for them the past week? And we t- like we present this image with the sun, sun and clouds, rain, fog, wind, etc. And it's interesting because some people, if you ask them, hey, let's talk about emotion, you know, how many people usually talk when it comes to vulnerability, people resist it or they you know, like have people say, hey, I'm an engineer. I don't have emotions. Don't don't get me there. Mm. So the power, power about metaphors, like, for example, what was the weather like? Is people start using the weather as a metaphor. So maybe it was sunny. Maybe it was sun, but other days it was rainy. Maybe it was wind, but was the wind on your favor or against you? But also it connects us to how we shift the same way. I live in Chicago, so now it's sunny, but in a few days the temperature might drop and maybe it starts raining or snowing early. You never know. Here in Chicago, it's so weird, the temperature. Well, the same happens with us as individuals. Our weather changes. 
But if we are aware that one of our members is going through a foggy period, we know how to, hey, we're not going to upset that person. We're going to let them uh, go through that storm and see what happens next. Yeah, I think the real brilliance here, Gustavo, of what you just said is, and I, I miss this nuance in the book until you just said this aloud, which is that, yes, we're leaning in on vulnerability. We're leaning in on emotion. But we're using analogy and and metaphor in order to get there, to make it really accessible. Because like you said, that's the kind of a thing that people tend to push back on. We get a little defensive about. But when it comes in the form of mm-hmm. metaphor, it's so much easier for people to latch onto that, isn't it? Absolutely. I think this it's not asking people what you want to hear. It's provoking thinking that then people are going to end talking about the things that we want to uncover, right? So for me, it's leaders need to also not, not only use tools and metaphors, but also they need to be willing to go through that unsafe, uh, uncharted territory uh, until people get used to talking. I always say that we need to build the psychological safety muscle. We need to move the team from one level to another in the ladder. And that requires modeling, that requires taking risk. And also, there's going to be a lot of backfire in the process because the first and second and maybe third iterations are not going to go well. And that's part of the process of your team learning how to do something. So don't quit if the first iteration or second attempt didn't work. One of the other questions that I love that you invite us to use is two questions, actually. What's your superpower and what's your kryptonite of asking that of team members? I've asked the superpower question before, but I never thought about asking the kryptonite question. And what again, getting back to metaphor, it's a fun way for people to then engage on like what's something I do well, but also what's something that's really a, a struggle or a challenge for me. But to let people answer that however they want to answer it, right? Absolutely. And it's good that you bring this because sometimes people, I mean, I started using this question, superpower and kryptonite, more like an icebreaker. Let's have fun. But then we started realizing that, it, to your point, it moves a lot of things that are really interesting. No? So the superpower, it's clearer, but the kryptonite is what drains your energy, what neutralizes or weakens your superpower. And when we do this with a team, we ask them to say, first, don't overplay your superpower. That's a problem. But also, if you have a kryptonite, how can your team members help you offset or balance that kryptonite? And another thing that's important is many times people express their kryptonite in terms of others. You know, they say, no, I hate people who uh, don't deliver what they promise. I hate when people don't make decisions and keep talking and dancing around the issues. So I always tell, okay, what's he need? What's about you? So if usually psychology 101, when something about someone bothers us, it's because there's something in our case that we haven't yet uh, figured it out. So I also invite them, okay, don't put your kryptonite in terms of what people do. Think about how it affects you and why. Mm, nice. And so it's it's focusing that, but it's focusing on the person and it's leaving it very open-ended. You know, I was, I was thinking about this and I have used for years one of the questions from Patrick Lencioni, who you also cite in the book, Pat has a personal histories exercise. And one of the questions is, describe a unique or interesting challenge or experience from your childhood. And it's a series of that with a number of other questions. But I think like part of the power of that question is it's very open-ended. It's very broad. People can go really deep with it if they want to, and sometimes they do, or they can say something that's a little safer for them. But either way, it's inviting them to just 
create some movement, of saying something to the team, to the group that reveals something in a way that's a little safer than kind of getting into like the emotional piece. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Don't expect everyone to go. I mean, everyone should play with the same rules. But if some people want to go very superficial, we need to respect them, especially if it's the first time that we're doing an activity. So I appreciate that comment because that's also not pushing people too hard. I'm not saying, hey, be careful, but we need to also let people open up at their own time rather than try to have everyone at the same level, especially on day one. One of the invitations you make that you alluded to earlier, but I think is so key, is involving everyone. And that's that's so key for psychological safety. And and it's something that as leaders, we sometimes, or if we're facilitating a meeting, we sometimes miss, don't we? Yeah. What you're talking about is one exercise that has to do with inviting people to map themselves into a two axis. You know, one axis is people who talk to think and people who think to talk. On the other hand, it's people that are shy and people that are more outgoing. So it's interesting because when you ask people to map themselves and then they can see, I do this with large teams, I don't want to start mapping themselves, how they compare to others, a lot of things happen. Not only people become more aware of their own style, but also that of their colleagues. I remember facilitating this activity with a team, if a manufacturing team, and everyone was on the top right quadrant, talk to think outgoing, and actually I would say almost off charts. Everyone was really, really up and really to the right. Hmm. And it didn't feel right. It didn't feel that it makes sense based on our experience, because usually we get UN distribution where people from different backgrounds. And then after asking some questions, we realized that that wasn't actually the preferred method for everyone, but it was the default method for the team leader. And he was forcing everyone to operate in a quadrant that wasn't not only their preferred one, but it wasn't healthy. So people were pretending being someone else jumping into stuff and the team wasn't leveraging the good of those people. So people that usually are good at reflection, coming up with great questions, they were just jumping to say something because they felt that they need to show us, hey, more outgoing, more extrovert, more, more talkative to please their manager. You know, I think about that and I think that I bet that happens a lot. And I, I, I've seen some of that as well, too, in teams where, well intended, the leader has set the tone. If you ask the people on the team, like, how do they work well together? They would articulate that they're working well. And yet I don't think even some people on the team would realize that that's actually not their preferred style unless you really took the time to examine that and stop and think about it. When you have seen a team like that, what's something that a leader might do that would be a starting point to start to open up the possibility for looking at that a different way and for examining what might work better for some folks on the team? Yeah. One thing it's maybe like a second iteration is to ask people, rather than work in other aspects of your life, when you thrive, what's your preferred method? And then you can map that and share with the team, a leader to, sh- to show the the gaps between how people are operating and actually how they would like to operate, no? The other thing is about inviting the team leader to think of, you cannot impose your leadership approach or your productivity approach or your management approach to other people. Because we talk a lot about diversity, which is a very important element into becoming creating a safe and inclusive workplace. But we also need to emphasize the diversity of perspective. 
So the teams that succeed, the teams that are more innovative, more successful, are teams that basically promote diversity of thinking. And when you're forcing people to think differently, not differently in a better way, but not to perform to their best, then you're not getting those diverse thinking that you want. So as a leader, do you want people to agree with you or do you want people to challenge you and elevate your game? I think that one of the key issues of psychological safety is when leaders realize not only that people need to feel safe to speak up, but leaders need to feel safe and promote that for people to challenge their ideas. There's one thing that we tell leaders, building on your question, which is, how do you want your team to hold you accountable? So we invite them to tell them, it's okay to call me out when. No, for example, this leader, if I'm pushing you to be too talkative, if I'm pushing to be more ongoing, don't giving you the time to reflect, call me out. So we help the leader acknowledge what's that issue that's getting in the way and then make it explicit as an ask to invite people, if I'm interacting you, call me out, for example. And looping all the way back to where we started, this is the the kinds of dialogue that we've been discussing. Some teams did really intentionally well in co-located environments, and some teams got there by accident, right, in the past. But you don't get there by accident in the hybrid and remote world as much. And so one of the things that just keeps coming up for me and thinking about this world we're all working in now is the importance and the critical nature of being more intentional about this. We all should have been doing this all along, right? But now the importance of us really thinking about how do we start, whether it's an existing team or a team coming together for the first time, of thinking about how these questions of welcoming and beginning starting to thinking about courageous conversations is so critical for our work. And if we're willing to do just a bit of this, it opens up the door for us to move up that ladder. And that's such a key thing then to do the really cool things like innovation and have courageous conversations that are so important. So I, I so appreciate your invitation, Gustavo, for us to do more of this and be more intentional. Because if we do, it's really going to do some great things for our teams. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that one thing that's important is the same way I mentioned earlier on, that there's no one size fits all my approach and what I put in the book and what I try to instill leaders, there's no, don't look for the magic pill, the silver bullet. There's no one single solution. Each team has to define and create their own. And that's the hardest part. Don't copy what other people are doing. Use them as inspiration, but you have to go through the process of working with your team and uncover what's going to work for your team and what not. It's, and it's one of the great strengths of the book and the website you have, too, is that there's so many different resources, templates, questions, maps that leaders can really grab almost anything as a starting point. And, and, and you start, like you said, you try something and it doesn't quite work and you try something else, but that you're making some intentional movement. And by the way, by us trying things and maybe asking the question we've never asked before that doesn't quite land the way we intended, we're showing our own vulnerability as leaders too. That's part of creating psychological safety in our team. So I love the invitation here to Begin. So we're going to link up to all of that in the episode notes in this week's weekly leadership guide. So watch for the link to the book. Gustavo, I, I have one other question for you. One of the things that I think is so true for all of us who lead is that we're learning and we're growing, right? Especially in the last few years. And ultimately, we're changing our minds on things. As you have written this book, as you've been teaching about the importance of culture and remote and hybrid teams over the last couple of years. What's something that you've changed your mind on? 
first one. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, first of all, to be honest, like if I look into 10 years ago, when I used to be CEO of a company or a couple of companies in different moments in my career, I wasn't that open to remote. And I also felt that the only way to build culture, the only way to collaborate is to be in the same room. Uh-huh. I learned a lot about design thinking and facilitation going to Stanford. And, and basically, I learned a lot about brainstorming and people on the go being very loud, post-its, everyone at the same time. And now I learned that a silent brainstorming, it's even much more effective. So when we work either remote or in person, we invite people to write their own ideas at their own pace before people start sharing. Not only that neutralizes, once again, for the thing to talk people, but also it, it makes sure that no one's taking over the conversation or allow their voices are not taking over brainstorming. So those are the things that I uh, learned overall. So I think that it's not that I was born with the knowledge. I also had to go through a lot of hurdles myself and through learning say, hey, there are better ways to do things that we used to do because it, we all thought that the way that we're doing things was the best until we dis- discover a new one. And that's for me the most important thing. I call, it's not that we change our mind, we evolve our mind. So we don't move from one place to another, we, we change with that learning. That's the most uh, important uh, thing for me. I mean, the f- initial phase is, uh, wow, I was wrong, but then you realize, well, that's what's learning all about. Not to stick to what you knew, but to practice something new. And I think that's a great invitation. I love the question. Thank you. Gustavo Rosetti is the author of Remote Not Distant, Design a Company Culture That Will Help You Thrive in a Hybrid Workplace. Gustavo, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you for having me. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 192, How to Create Team Guidelines. Susan Gerke was my guest on that episode, and we looked at the process in detail, start to finish, of how you would begin with a team to create guidelines. I don't think there's a single episode that comes up more in my conversations with listeners and members each week than this episode. So many of you have utilized it over the years to begin the process of putting together guidelines and expectations with the team. Many of you have also gone on to reach into Susan's resources, the Go Team resources, materials that have been so helpful, I know, for so many of you. Details on that in episode 192 and also in the episode's notes there. Great compliment, of course, to what Gustavo has recommended for us today. Speaking of today's conversation, we talked about psychological safety, and no conversation about psychological safety is complete without, of course, the work of Amy Edmondson. Episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety. Amy and I talked about her book, The Fearless Organization, some of the key principles for leaders in thinking about psychological safety. Of course, broad implications for that in so many organizations and contexts, whether it is in-person person, hybrid or remote, the key principles that we can use that will help support us. And then finally, episode 537, how to engage remote teams. Sidal Neely was my guest on that episode, and we talked about some of the key tactics we can utilize in order to engage teams in a remote environment. And I love that conversation because she mentioned a number of tactics that are super helpful. Gustavo mentioned different tactics, a great combination between the two of them. So if you like this episode, I definitely recommend checking out also episode 537. 
37. A lot of tools there, and then you can pick and choose the ones that are going to work right now for your team and be most helpful to you. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes that I've aired since 2011, and most importantly, the ability to search by topic. One of the topic areas we've set up inside the episode library is a topic area under remote work that has become, of course, so critical in recent years since the pandemic. But of course, we were having many conversations even before that. Many, many more episodes there that will be helpful to you right now if you're looking for uh, resources to support remote and hybrid teams. I'd invite you to spend some time in the library to find that. Of course, several dozen other topic areas that will be helpful to you as well. So you can find what's most relevant to you right now in our listening library. Of course, all of the podcast episodes over the years are all freely available on all the public directories. We're going to continue to do that uh, as long as we can. But if you really want to find the thing that's most relevant to you right now, the episode library is the place to do that. And setting up your free membership is going to give you access to that. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com. You'll be off and running with your free membership in just a few minutes. Maybe you've heard more about the Enneagram assessment in recent years. I know I have. And next week, I'm glad to feature a guest who's going to help us to get a little bit more perspective. I had never taken the Enneagram until I met next week's guest, Ian Morgan Cron. He'll be helping us on a path towards more self-awareness by using the Enneagram. Join me for that conversation with Ian. Have a great week, and I'll see you back on Monday.